You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we're featuring Zach Sims, who is CEO and founder of Codecademy, one of the biggest platforms to learn to code with millions of users around the world. His story is incredible. Having founded this company 10 years ago, he recently raised his Series D. Although behind some of the hype, it's not necessarily what we would have imagined behind the scenes. We're excited to be able to dive into some of these elements with Zach today. This episode is supported by Euronext, the leading pan-European stock exchange. Hi, Zach. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Well, I think we saw some really great announcements earlier this year about your Series D funding, and we're going to get a chance to dive into that in just a second. But you actually published a series of tweets at the time that like really stuck with me. And you talked about how you guys started out with kind of a hype story, went into bankruptcy and came back again. Give me give me a little bit of the backstory on that. Yeah, so we um, we started Code Academy originally in 2011. Uh, we were fortunate enough that you know we had a lot of growth on the consumer side. Uh, and so we raised uh, an early round of capital, raised about two and a half million dollars from the folks at Union Square Ventures and um, spent the first four years of the business just com- completely and totally free. Um, we, we raised another Series B about six months later from the folks at Index Ventures and Kleiner Perkins. Um, and I think, you know, we, we thought of ourselves in the early days as kind of really focusing on building a movement um, just as much as a company. I think it was, you know, unclear at the time uh, whether or not, you know, everyone around the world needed to learn to program uh, and whether they would use a product like ours. And so we spent a lot of time kind of doing advocacy, a lot of work with governments like the White House and, and Number 10 in the UK. Uh, and and ultimately, this was also kind of the heyday of startups that you know grew their user bases super quickly and figured out how to monetize later. You know, this is when Snapchat, um, you know, was just coming out, and it was unclear how they would monetize. And Twitter, you know, Foursquare, you had a lot of these businesses that were growing super quickly where monetization was an afterthought. And so I think for us, it was it was very similar. I mean, we were growing pretty meteorically from a top of funnel perspective, and we didn't really see the need uh, to monetize early on in the life of the business because it seemed like there would kind of be this endless source of capital uh, as long as that user number was growing. And then I think we, we kind of were uh, taken aback when, you know, several years into the business, uh, when we went to raise more capital, it was kind of in the middle of, um, you know, the, the European uh, financial crisis when Greece was, you know, was, was having plenty of issues and a lot of other countries were. And, you know, it became harder to raise venture capital financing. Uh, and I think at that point, you know, we, we realized, like, wait a second, we, we had spent the past four years, you know, really, really focused on growing the business, um, you know, from a pure, uh, pure organic and, and top of funnel perspective, but not generating revenue. Uh, and, and I think that problem for us, um, you know, obviously led to a real uh, pivot in the business very quickly. Uh, to start generating revenue and to build a business that you know didn't just grow from a top of funnel and and users perspective, but really was a, a large and sustainable business and and kind of dramatically changed, um, you know how we uh, how we thought about the company and and I think y- you mentioned the tweet storm obviously 
the, there were plenty of responses to that about like, oh, how obvious is it um, that you know you have to build a business? And like, can you believe this company went four years without believing that? Um, we we always knew we needed to build a business. I think that the question was just, you know, at what point can you, you know, do you make the pivot from building a business that you know grows and and markets itself towards a business that is, you know, sustainable um, from a capital perspective? And and I think that jury's still out on that. We obviously see a lot of mega rounds of financing these days for companies that you know aren't generating meaningful amounts of revenue. Yeah. And I think actually, I'm surprised that you say that there was that kind of, I don't know if we want to call it criticism, but people that were like, yeah, it's obvious a business needs to generate revenue. Um, because I do think that there are a lot of startups that I, you mentioned this in, in your in your tweets, you talk about uh, concentrating on real metrics and not vanity metrics about, you know, not worrying about the competition. And you, you I mean, there's a lot of really, really great lessons in there that I feel like a lot of startups actually fall into the same pitfalls. Um, I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about like, what do you feel some of those key learnings really were? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, early on, it was uh, the environment around me, uh, you know, really reinforced, I think, a lot of this, you know, you can raise venture capital financing forever. And I think, by the way, that that environment still exists today, you know, it, it, perhaps even more so, right? Um, you know, I, I think we uh, we are living in a time today where, you know, you can raise just an, an, an incredible amount of capital um, prior to having your, uh, you know, your financials really in a great place. And I, I think that's really dangerous. Uh, so I think a lot of people need to, you know, think twice when they're raising capital about kind of what, um, you know, what the future of their business is and what the eventual business model will be as well. Uh, and I think, you know, if not, you see a lot of these businesses that raise lots of capital, you know, they grow very quickly um, and then they, they face a reckoning later on. And a lot of this may sound obvious, you know, but the way that venture capital financing works, um, I think is, is obviously such that, um, you know, it's speculative. And so for some people uh, it is easier to raise capital, uh, you know, early on. And, and it, it seems like the obvious and easy thing to do, um, but it, it is not always the right thing to do. Definitely agree with you on that one. So now what I want to do, obviously, fast forward, because I mean, we just went through kind of like the whole backstory. Um, tell us a little bit about Code Academy today. What, how many numbers? I mean, how, where do you guys have the most users? Uh, what's the most popular? Tell us just for, I guess, our listeners that are probably less familiar with the company. Yeah. So Code Academy at this point uh, has, you know, tens of millions of learners uh, all around the world. Uh, and, I, and at this point, you know, more than 150,000 paying subscribers uh, as well that, that are Code Academy Pro subscribers. Uh, and so the, those people spend uh, somewhere, you know, between $40 a month and $240 a year, um, you know, paying for access to really a product that hopefully helps them connect to better career opportunities, uh, helps them, you know, get uh, access to economic opportunity by using, you know, an unlimited content library. Uh, by giving them a community of people that they can work with, uh, and then finally by giving them certificates as well. Uh, so, so I think you know, Code Academy Pro at this point um, is a product that is one of the biggest online learning communities uh, in the world, uh, and I think that's kind of what what makes us uh, excited about the future of what we're building. Super. And are primarily users coming to the platform just for? Do they just want to learn the basics? Are they looking to actually change careers? What What are the trends that you're seeing? 
Yeah, it's definitely a lot of folks that are interested in changing their careers. I think, you know, people start, generally they start their journey with us, um, but at the same time, they, you know, also are looking to finish it with us. So that's everything from, you know, figuring out which job they're eligible for through, you know, eventually, um, you know, picking up the skills on Codecademy to preparing for interviews and, and you know, potential interview questions on the platform as well. So we see people as well that go from being kind of mid-level developers to senior developers uh, using Codecademy too. So the platform has really grown from, from just a place to start uh, to really a, a place for you to kind of continue learning uh, over time and over the course of your career as well. And so you guys started in 2011, and I'm assuming that so much has changed in this space since you guys started out 10 years ago. But before we dive into that, I actually want to know, how did you yourself learn to code? Great question. Uh, I think, you know, it's always a, a work in progress. Uh, I am, <laughs> you know, even today continuing to learn. Uh, so I definitely would not say I, I wouldn't hire me as an engineer today. Um, but actually, the, the company started uh, to teach me to program. So that, that's really the, the original story is, you know, I was, I was an undergrad at Columbia uh, trying to learn to program. Uh, I took in a uh, computer science introductory course, and I basically found the, the course to be super frustrating and challenging uh, and thought that there needed to be a better way. And so really, we originally started Codegatomy uh, to teach me to program. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I still use the product today to hopefully, you know, continue to brush up on those skills. And God forbid the company doesn't go anywhere, you know, then hopefully I'll be able to get a job as an engineer somewhere. <laughs> Fascinating. So you were definitely a, a beta tester of, the, of your own product, eat your own dog food. I love it. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. So 2011, when you guys started out, was coding as popular as it is to where were people trying to get an education and learn to become programmers? Did people even know what that meant? Yeah, I think when we first started, you know, there was a, a major question about, um, you know, whether people needed to acquire these skills in the first place. And I, I think that, you know, was was pretty frustrating uh, to us. We believed, you know, as as um, Zuckerberg said, uh, sorry, not Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen said a couple of weeks after we launched the business, you know, software is eating the world. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that was always our thesis. If software is eating the world, then every company in the world should become a technology company over time. Um, and that'll require a lot more people to have programming skills. Uh, and so that was kind of always our thesis. Um, and I think that is kind of what has come true today. Um, even though, you know, when we when we started the business, that trend might have seemed a little less obvious to everyone. And I think now, like over time, we started to see just so many different models popping up. I mean, we have, for example, uh, 42. You may have heard of the school that we have in yep. Paris. Um, and yep. so there's like a lot of different uh, models. I'm, I'm wondering... What evolution have you seen in this space, especially now that we have like, you know, all these no code tools? Is coding still relevant? Are there new jobs popping up? Do people need, you know, new skills in, in this area? Yeah, great question. I mean, look, I, I think, um, you know, coding is, is still uh, incredibly relevant. Uh, and I, I think, you know, what's happened is people have moved up the stack. If you will. So I think you're living in a world where, um, you know, no code, it makes it easier for people that weren't programming in the first place to now use the power of code to do other things. Um, but it doesn't really absolve, uh, you know, engineers, et cetera, of, of doing the hard work. Uh, and so I think it just means that coding has kind of gone further down the stack to, um, you know, people that are accountants or, you know, operations folks that can use robotic process automation. I think it just means that there is a lot of 
um, opportunity for other people to harness the power of coding. And, and hopefully, honestly, you know, we want folks to realize how powerful coding is and can be uh, and through no-code tools and eventually to you know, learn uh, themselves as well. And does this mean that you guys have had to also launch new offers um, you know, to, to keep up with kind of some of these evolutions? Yep, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, you know, we have launched courses in, in no code. So we worked on a course with the folks at Wix uh, in their programming, la- programming language, uh, Velo. Uh, we also you know, have, have done a partnership with the folks at MakerPad, um, which is, you know, a no code education startup uh, to, you know, help their learners learn about programming and help our learners learn more about no code. Um, so I, I think we're, you know, bullish on no code as a as an on ramp for people to get closer eventually to, uh, you know, more programming as well. And for people who may still not be convinced, you know, that this is necessarily the right path for them, um, you mentioned earlier some of the numbers that you have. I assume that you know behind every one of those numbers is an incredible story. Have you had any users that have come forward and said, you know, this changed my life, it gave me the ability to do this or that? Yeah, we have had uh, many users, fortunately, that, that have uh, come, come to us with that story. Um, I, I think at this point, you know, there, there are probably tens of thousands of them. Um, I think, you know, a, a couple things over the course of the past uh, couple of, you know, over the past 12 months, I think that have been uh, really powerful that have kind of kept me motivated. I think everything from, you know, we have a learner named Agbasan who is in Nepal, uh, whose school closed last year uh, during the middle of COVID, you know, wanted to continue learning and exploring uh, the basics of programming, um, taught himself Python and JavaScript, and decided to team up with a friend who was using Codecademy 2 and built a website uh, called COVID Nepal, which actually kind of became the go-to resource for, for folks in Nepal to learn about um, the COVID situation. So I think we see people that are kind of entrepreneurial. Uh, we also see, you know, uh, there's a learner of ours uh, named Kate, who was, was a stay-at-home mom uh, for, you know, more than 15 years and, and tried to re-enter the workforce, um, you know, started learning to program in 2018 and you know, landed a job uh, because of those skills with a security company about a year later. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic, her husband ended up getting laid off and, and she became kind of the, the sole provider for her family. So I think we we hear stories like that a lot that, you know, involve people being super entrepreneurial, um, you know, with with the skills that they've acquired on Codecademy, uh, as well as, you know, over time, people that, that find jobs uh, because of, you know, what they learn on the site, too. Yeah, and that's impressive because it's also a fast turnaround, like within a year. Yeah. Uh, within a few months, people are able to to kind of completely switch their path. Um, I'm now curious to to know what you think about, especially code education with regards to kids. Uh, a lot of governments around the world, I think probably the discussion has kind of calmed down uh, since COVID, but have always been talking about we need to start code education for kids in you know grade school when they're really young. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, and so, you know, in the U.S., there's some great work being done by, um, being done by Code.org, uh, specifically targeting, you know, K-12, uh, K-12 education uh, that I think has been really, really great. Uh, abroad, I think we've seen kind of similar growth. I think the U.K., uh, we worked with uh, when David Cameron was the PM and Michael Gove was the education minister on, you know, really creating an opportunity for every child in the U.K. to learn programming. Um, we've seen kind of similar efforts in many countries across the world. So I think it's 
obviously difficult uh, for countries to start implementing, you know, it, teaching an entirely new subject, but I think incredibly important if any company wants to be kind of, sorry, any country wants to be uh, on, you know, the cutting edge of the future and, and of technology and digitalization, um, you know, they should be teaching programming. And is there, have you seen one country that you think is really leading the way in this space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the UK has done a great job. I think there are a lot of Asian countries that are kind of mandating, uh, you know, education in computer science and Singapore does this as well, Estonia. Um, so I really think it's, it's hard to point to just one. I think fortunately there are uh, plenty, um, you know, that are, that are still uh, you know, doing a pretty good job uh, on ramping. And I think in the US, you know, we are fortunately doing a pretty good job as well, uh, but I think you know over the long run, really, what we need to focus on um, is you know getting kind of a, st- a standardized method of of um, you know of teaching folks in the U.S. I think now you know state by state, there's there's lots of different types of curriculum, uh, and you know, no no real agreement across the board on what people need to learn to be successful in uh, software development. Yeah, so that could be a big challenge uh, that we need to sort out. Yeah. Now I'm wondering also. Um, We've talked a lot about kind of the backstory to Code Academy, uh, a little bit about the evolution of the space. Kind of want to go now into the future. Um, I saw that you posted somewhere that you feel Zoom is not the future of education. Yeah. I'd love to know what is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, one of the things that we've um, that we have focused on uh, for a, a very long period of time is, you know, basically giving people an education that is interactive, um, you know, and, and uses the web and technology for what it's good, what it's good at. Uh, and I think, you know, as, as you look at what we've done over the past year, it's, you know, basically you're taking these in-classroom experiences that don't really scale in the first place and you're putting them online and you're basically asking people, um, you know, to sit and watch a Zoom for hours and hours and hours uh, and then go home and do, you know, homework uh, or projects or something like that. And so, I, I think, you know, better means people that have the ability to interact, get immediate feedback, um, you know, it kind of use technology for what it's good for. And, and I think as we look at what we've done with the Academy experience, it is, you know, you're getting immediate feedback when you're writing code, you're getting points and badges to keep you motivated, you're working with a global community, we're using, you know, your learning progress to customize and tailor learning for you. Uh, and it's not kind of the classic sage on the stage uh, experience that I think many people have with Zoom learning. So, you know, I think m- one of my concerns is that as we look at the, um, you know, what the pandemic has done to foster acceptance of, you know, online learning, that actually a lot of people will have a bad taste in their mouth um, because, you know, Zoom is not the best way for folks to learn. So that's, I find that's a really, really good and interesting point because I totally agree with you. I think that People are kind of losing steam and and getting uh, demotivated by a lot of uh, these um, different classes and uh, options that they would have via Zoom format. So you mentioned a little bit about kind of the power behind what you guys have built. But tell me, like, really, as a user, what what does the experience look like for someone who's never actually used Code Academy? Yeah, I mean, I think the the real focus uh, for us has been on that you know, interactivity uh, and immediate, you know, again, delivery of points and badges, et cetera, um, where I, I think, you know, people uh, are learning by doing. So we've put an interactive development environment in the browser that allows people to write code uh, instead of watching videos. So they're reading a little bit about, 
you know, what to do, then they're immediately implementing it. And while they're writing code, we tell them whether they're correct or incorrect uh, or kind of what's going on. Um, and, and then they get that feedback. It tells them, you know, how they're doing, uh, they're accruing, you know, their progress, their points, their badges, et cetera, over time to keep them motivated. Um, you know, they're able to work with other folks in, uh, in our community and, and that experience of, you know, truly learning by doing and, and being deep in that, uh, in learning, I think is something that, you know, is, uh, is really impactful in a way that, you know, traditional learning generally involves you, you know, watching a college professor or a teacher or something like that, um, and doesn't give you the opportunity to kind of stay deeply engaged in your learning at all times. And so that's something that we've really focused on is like, you know, how can you be writing code over the entirety of your time learning? And you mentioned something that I, I think is worth also kind of pointing to. You, you've mentioned community now uh, at least twice um, when talking about the product and what you guys have built. Um, and a lot of people, I think, see coding as a very solitary activity. So how does the community actually play out? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, you know, I, I think for us, um, a, a real uh, focus for us is that community. I think we've, we've learned that, you know, people that have the ability uh, to work with others and peers to keep them motivated, um, it's really critical, and they're they are going to be significantly more successful uh, than their peers that potentially you know do not have access to a community like that. Uh, and so, I I think for us, um, you know, giving them that community is also a real differentiator, right? Because I think at the end of the day, you know, it gives uh, people an opportunity they might not have. Uh, in the classroom, which is when you're in a classroom, you know, you have 10, 20 other people with you, you might not have the uh, the opportunity to, you know, experience uh, or, you know, meet someone who is similar to you or can help you, uh, you know, help you learn on the way. And, and what you have the ability to do with a big, broad, you know, community with tens of millions of members, um, you know, I think you, you have the opportunity to um, meet people that can keep you motivated and, and can kind of push you as you're learning. And so I think that investment in community for us um, is is really important and has really paid dividends. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now let's take a step back from code and programming. And let's just talk about in general, what do you find exciting in the education space right now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, to me, uh, honestly, one of the things that I, that I think um, is, the, is the most exciting right now um, is the fact that there are, you know, lots of education businesses that for the first time are kind of dispelling this myth that you can't build a big business in education. So I, I think as you look at, um, you know, what, has pre- what had previously been precedent in the education space, you had two, three, maybe four big education companies, um, but today, you know that that myth is being dispelled. I think we've gone from you know the publishers being the big businesses and you know Chegg being the the biggest uh, business in the room to now. I think we're we're in a world where you know Chegg is a twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen billion dollar business, uh, and you know you're looking at uh, companies like Baiju's that are really big. Uh, a lot of Indian education technology businesses that are big, uh, but also in the U.S., companies like Brainly, companies like Quizlet, Duolingo, Coursera, Udemy, where for the first time, I think these businesses are proving it's possible to be, um, you know, a really large and material uh, business in education. And I think that will lead to, you know, a lot of innovation uh, in education. So. I think, um, you know, that that to me is like a really large breakthrough. And it might seem like a small thing, but, 
um, you know, the fact that there is really demonstrable market opportunity there, I think is meaningful. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And how about on the innovation side? Anything kind of unique and, and strange that you see coming out of the space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is um, a, a lot of interesting stuff going on uh, in K-12 as well. Uh, a friend of mine started a company called Schoolhouse that's bringing a lot more education online. Uh, I, I think, you know, for K-12, I think this kind of concept of online learning and micro schools, et cetera, will uh, grow, you know, s significantly faster than it did previously. And I think that opportunity now only exists because, you know, it was, um, you know, it, it was possible, uh, it is possible to teach folks online. Um, and that, I think, is something we learned over the past year. So I think a lot of K-12 now um, will start to migrate online. Super. And Zach, we've covered so much, but I'd like to end on a note uh, that kind of goes back to what we initially started on uh, the Series D funding that you guys raised. So you probably have some big plans up your sleeve. What should we expect to see from Code Academy in the upcoming months? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're really focused on is taking the Code Academy experience to other countries. So we spent a lot of time, um, you know, thinking about how to expand it to markets like India um, and beyond uh, to, to really give that uh, Code Academy experience to others. I think the second thing we're spending a lot of time doing is, you know, in investing a lot in Code Academy for Business, which is a product that helps uh, big, you know, Fortune 500 businesses and, and small businesses alike um, retrain their workforces so they can retain their workforces. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we will continue to invest a lot more in that as well to help every company become uh, a digital company. Um, so I think those are probably the two, uh, two biggest things on the horizon for us. Super. Well, we're excited to see you guys grow in Europe for sure. Um, and thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. It was great to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a guest, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Deezer, and Google. All right, see you soon.